A possible suspension for Nuggets big man Nikola Jokic. James Harden turns back the clock yet again. The Warriors and Knicks face critical game fours on the road. The NBA's second round is heating up with intriguing storylines abound. Are the Florida Panthers now the team to beat in the Stanley Cup playoffs? The Rays continue their winning ways. The Pirates have come back to earth. And the Braves have the biggest lead in any division in baseball as I'll take a trip around the majors. Some early discussion about the upcoming 2023 NFL schedule. Mage wins the Kentucky Derby with little fanfare based on some disturbing reports from Churchill Downs. And Canelo Alvarez goes home, wins, but against who? I'll have all of that and then some as another fast-paced, fun-filled hour of sports chatter is on the horizon. It's all coming up, but first, this message. J Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the J Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? is happening my good people greetings how are you how's it going how's everybody doing out there what is the latest and greatest i hope everybody's doing well feeling fantastic in excellent spirits i am jacked up ready to go and packing a big wallop through your phone tablet device and rocking your headphones or speakers with hard-hitting unapologetic and entertaining sports talk unlike any other as this is the j reels podcast with your host j reels for my first-timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back a big week on the podcast as I have an interview that is already on YouTube. So for the visually inclined, if you want to check out my interview with Maria Marino on Action Network, or that's where she's at now, previously SNY, we delve into various things about her broadcasting journey, Also, getting into the women's college basketball game as far as the rise and everything that happened over the last couple of months, especially with the tournament, the controversy surrounding Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark, also the power of P-Words. We get into all that. Now, you could go to, of course, jreels.com or wherever you get your podcasts. But on top of that, for those who want to watch the interview, you could go to YouTube and peep that. So I would love to hear some feedback on you guys and gals to see what you think. As far as just the YouTube channel, the podcast, etc. So I just wanted to put that out there to start. So that kicks off this big week, as well as this podcast. And of course, later on in the week when we'll reconvene on Thursday. And also, I'd be remiss if I did not mention that my loving, adorable grandson, 
Cameron turns eight today. Here on this eighth day of May, Cameron, who is in Florida with his mom, and I spent the weekend with my son, Andre, I just want to wish you a very happy birthday, at least 88 more to come, and then some. I love you, kid. Can't wait to see you. I'm sure we'll FaceTime later, and we'll get to reconnect there. So I just want to put that out there for my grandson, Cameron. That's right. I do have a grandson, people. So uh, one more time, happy birthday to him. Now let's get right to it. There's a lot that you want here in the sports world. And the NBA has some very interesting storylines, especially what has taken place over the weekend. And I'll start off with what happened in Phoenix. And I did mention this on Thursday's podcast. I knew that the Suns were going to be heard from here. I know they had two tough games in Denver. The first one was a blowout. The second one was actually nip and tuck. Low scoring when you think about it. What was it, 97-87? But I knew that Phoenix, even without Chris Paul in the lineup, and who knows what his status will be for Game 5 tomorrow night. Chances are, at 38 years of age, he may be a game-time decision, or he may not even play altogether. But based on what we've seen here over the last two games, the combo of Devin Booker and Kevin Durant are just enough, and then some, to get themselves back into the series, back to a point where they'll go to Denver tomorrow night and see if they could steal one game to have the home court in their building to take away the number one seed in the West, and that being the Denver Nuggets. But a lot of the talk is last night in the third quarter when you had a loose ball go into the stands, and it was Denver ball, and Nikola Jokic goes over to grab the ball. Little did he know that the ball was in the hands of the Suns owner, Matt Ispia, and as he tried to wrestle the ball out of his arms, he threw an elbow, and it was evident that he did, not necessarily more of a push, I don't want to look, make it sound like he just like swung his elbow and tried to knock him out. A little bit of a flop there by Ispia, but it was known that the contact was there by Jokic to where he did push Ispia into his chair. Yes, a little bit of a flop, but even as that was, he did get a technical. Jokic was teed up, and now the talk is whether or not he's going to get suspended here for Game 5. And let's call it as we see it. Ispia... He's a new owner, new to the scene. We all know the story, Robert Sarver and that whole sorted, just disgusting stories that were coming out of Phoenix when he was the owner of the franchise. And Ispia, who was the new kid on the block, who is sitting there courtside and for whatever the reason, instead of trying to give the ball back and him being a fan and him trying to throw a little gamesmanship as the Nuggets were trying to get the ball to inbound to race up the court. And what happened as timing would have it, The former two-time MVP happens to come across with this new owner. And even in the postgame, Jokic didn't even know who the owner was. And why would he think so? It's not as if he's been around 20-some-odd years like Mark Cuban, where you've seen him on the sidelines, the Mavericks owner. So for Jokic in the postgame to say, hey, I don't they're supposed to protect the fans. All I was doing was trying to get the ball. And if the fans were trying to not give up the ball and not be into the flow of the game... And even though I may have responded, and he shouldn't have given the elbow, and I get it that maybe it was a scenario where he felt as if, hey, back off me, and there are plenty of hands and people around him. And I get it that Jokic, he could talk all he wants about being protected by the league or by the officials or even security there, and he's right about that. You can't dispute that, but I understand you also can't throw that little nudge or the elbow that he did to knock Ispia into his chair. That's going to cause an uproar. And that should not warrant a suspension. Please people. If Jokic is going to get suspended here. It's going to tarnish the series. 
Should he get a fine? All right, you want to hit him? 25, 50,000, whatever the fine would be, no problem. That I get. He shouldn't have done that, but at the same time, the ball should have been thrown to the referee or it should have been at least in play to the point where Jokic didn't have to go over there and have to get into this little tussle with the Suns owner and with a couple of the people there that were part of the scene in the third quarter last night. So Jokic, if he gets suspended, that will be comical. And one more time, it will just ruin the whole series. Because will Denver have a shot if Jokic is going to sit out a game five for them to win and then push it to a game six to where they could possibly have a 3-2 series lead? Who knows? But I'm going to look at it as if the NBA will not come down on Jokic with a suspension and he'll be playing game five there tomorrow night. So now you have a series there, which I thought would be the case Now, Denver, I would think that they're going to hold serve on home court. Why would I think any different? Even though Kevin Durant and Devin Booker are as hot as a pistol right now, and even you could argue that Devin Booker, maybe this side of Jimmy Butler, is the best player in the playoffs. What he's performed so far, whether it was in the first round against the Clippers and what we've seen here so far in the second round, if there was a quote-unquote MVP of the playoffs at this point, It would have to be Devin Booker. He's been shooting the lights out of the ball. The other night, what was he, 20 for 25 when he scored 47 there in the game three. And last night, again, just lit up the scoreboard. Durant got himself back on track. I know he had a poor shooting performance there on Friday night. But again, when you have those two guys on the floor, and if they're going to put up anywhere between 60 to 70 points a game, it's going to be hard to beat them. And now it's going to see whether or not the Nuggets are going to throttle that duo and try to keep them at bay to the point where I get it that the coach Mike Malone was just looking at those two guys and say hey let them get their points we just can't let the other people beat you but if they're going to score 70 75 maybe even 80 points a game they're still going to be tough to beat you got to try to stop or slow down one of them and if you're able to do that then you may have a shot all you got to do is just go back to the tape I get it home court Phoenix as opposed to Denver with the high altitude, etc. But they have to go back to the drawing board to see what they could do to slow down those two and see if they could come away with a win tomorrow night. And then in hopes to try to wrap up the series in Phoenix there for Game 6 later on in the week. As for the Celtics and Sixers, Celtics had a big performance there by Jason Tatum. Not that it was anything to really write home about. He had 27 points on Friday, but he looked back at the... MVP ceremony for a one Joel Embiid who got his trophy prior to the start of the game. He said that motivated him knowing that Embiid was going to be pumped up as well as that crowd, the environment. We know how the Philly fans are. And the Celtics played very well in winning a game three in Philadelphia. James Harden was invisible. Three for 14 from the field when he had 16 points in the game. Embiid was Embiid. I believe he ended up with what, 28? But still, they were no match for what? The Celtics threw at them and they were able to win the road game that they needed. And then yesterday, and I understand a lot of people are going to look at Joe Mazzulla and say, where are your timeouts? Or what's happening here down the stretch of these games where they're unable to not only execute, we all know the NBA is a make or miss league. But when we look at those final seconds in regulation and overtime for Marcus Smart to try to get that three-pointer with what, 0.1 seconds to go and it didn't fall. All right, that could happen. But in the overtime, 116-115, and even Jalen Brown raised his hand very high when he said it was a bad read on his part by leaving James Harden open as he was trying to double Joel Embiid. 
during that final sequence there in overtime. Harden makes the three to make it 116-115. And then Joe Mazzulla does not call a timeout. There was, what, 19 seconds left on the clock after the three was made. So there was no need to call a timeout. If it was maybe 10, 12 seconds or less than that, I could see, let's draw up a play. Let's see what we could do to try to get the best shot possible. Of course, all they needed was just a two-point basket. And as it was, they milked the clock down to about six where Tatum is going to the basket. He kicks it out to Marcus Smart. But before he's even able to make a shot attempt, the buzzer goes off. And as it was, the shot actually goes in. So if Tatum maybe broke about a second earlier to be able to kick that ball out to Smart, who knows? Smart would have been a hero. The Celtics would have gone up to a 3-1 series lead back to Boston. And who knows? They possibly would have had a great opportunity to close out the Sixers because that would have been a deflating loss considering that James Harden turned back the clock yet again, not only to the 2017-2018 Houston Rocket MVP form, but even game one where he scored 45, he scored 42 in this game, thanks to Doc Rivers, the coach, sending him a text about a gospel song that got him all pumped up and ready to go. Harden, at least for one game, showed that he was clutch and showed that he was able to come through. But as we've seen time and time again, as these series get deeper... Whether it's games 5, 6, and 7, let's see him deliver in a big spot. But you got to give it up. Yesterday he did so after that pathetic Game 3 performance. And now we have a series here where it's deadlocked even at 2. Goes back to Boston here tomorrow night. And you would think the Celtics, whether it's the mental breakdowns, the sloppy play, that's what really kills this team more than anything. And yesterday they were down by 16 points there late in the third quarter. They came roaring back. And showed that they were able to have some gumption. And weren't able to fold in big spots. But they weren't able to get the shot there at the end of regulation. Same for overtime as it came just a second too late. And now all the Celtics could do is pick up the pieces and see what they're going to do as far as to be able to come out and try to just blitz Philly out of the building. Hopefully it could be a rocking chair type of game that we saw in game two. Especially as a Celtic fan like myself. But... In all seriousness, how I look at the rest of the series is as long as the Celtics, we know they're going to shoot threes until they're blue in the face. They're going to live and die by those. And what you're going to see there from Embiid in these last couple of games is going to be huge. Harden, I understand that's also a factor. you got to question that as well because we've seen now in two games, whether it was one and four, that he has shown up and showed out. But now, let's see what the Celtics are going to do here. Not only just with Embiid, but also with Harden as they're going to have to pay attention to him in certain spots because as we've seen here, he's delivered on both of these victories to where now it's a best of three. So I could see the Celtics winning this series. Could it be six? I think it could be, but I wouldn't be surprised if it goes seven. So that's where we are with those two series. As far as the other two that are at 2-1 at the moment and they'll be playing later on this evening, the road teams are certainly going to be up against it here. More so for the Warriors, I think, than the Knicks. And for this reason. The Lakers, they have played very well at home as we've seen throughout the course of this postseason. Granted, they've only played there four times. They had the playing game against Minnesota, which when you think about it, they could have lost but didn't. And then the two games that they beat Memphis in their building, as well as the Game 3 blowout, which there's nothing to really discuss there on Saturday night. And then if you want to even piggyback off the Thursday night game from when we last spoke, that wasn't anything to really sneeze at. Or as a matter of fact, now that I think about it, they played the night before, so they had that long layoff between 
the two games. So you had game two where Klay Thompson shot the hell out of the ball. He was 8 for 11 from 3, 30 points. And then that was a blowout leading up to the game on Saturday where Anthony Davis was invisible in game two. Bounced back there in a game number three and just ran the Warriors out of the gym. And I think this is going to be a huge game for them. And we know that we've seen them in huge games. But this is going to be a defining game for them. And what I mean by that is, if they go down 3-1, we all know that chances are they're probably not going to come out of this series alive. But we're really going to see the gumption of this year's team. We know the pedigree and we know the championship DNA. And in fact, all you got to do is go back to last year's Game 4 in Boston, NBA Finals, when they were down 94-90 with about five minutes to go, and how they were able to prevail and Steph Curry... Just dragged them through the finish line and able to win that game and that propelled them to win the series in six as we all know and they became NBA champions. So I really feel that this is going to be that type of game in this type of series that it could define not only just them for this playoff run and maybe even for this series but maybe deeper than that if they come out alive and beat the Lakers in the series. Because... I would look at this game tonight being a little bit more tooth and nail. I wouldn't be surprised if the Lakers come out flying knowing that they want to put the hammer down on the Lakers here. But I'd be shocked if the Warriors just, I'm not going to say go into a shell. But unless Steph Curry is going to have an awful shooting night and the same goes for Klay Thompson, etc. I would be really surprised if the Warriors aren't in this game in the fourth quarter. And if they aren't in this game late, midway, whatever it may be, I can see them pulling this out. Because the NBA does want to see a long series, and not that I'm trying to be a conspiracy theorist by any stretch when it comes to extending these series, or let's say if the Lakers go up 3-1 that nobody's going to watch. And as we all know, if the Warriors somehow, some way do win this game, you know that this is going to have length. You would think that it's going to go seven games, quite possibly, but... Put that aside, I really feel as if this is going to be the moment for the Warriors to shine here in this game for tonight. Would I be shocked if the Lakers run them out of the gym? No. But that would go a lot and say a lot more so for Golden State than it would be for the Lakers. Because for everything that they've had to endure, rough regular season, hovering around 500, terrible on the road, not good defensively, they were down 2-0, to the Kings, they won a game six, or excuse me, they won a game five in their Sacramento's building before losing game six at home and then having to win a game seven the way they did, showing their toughness and their gumption. And I get it, Sacramento, they're new to these parts. This is uncharted territory for a young team that has never been in a postseason scenario and for a franchise that hadn't been in the postseason in 16 years. And these are the Lakers. So I totally get it. But... I think tonight is going to be a telltale sign as to how this Warrior makeup, toughness, DNA, how far that's going to go, especially if they win tonight or if they just don't even show up. And then you have the Knicks in heat as Jimmy Butler came back in a game three and he scored 28 points as they were in cruise control. They had the building behind them. They were flying. They were just playing typical heat basketball. Unselfish. Everybody getting involved. And especially Butler, the guy who you could say is maybe 1A to Devin Booker as far as being the best player so far in this postseason. And they just 
storm off to a, what was it, 105-86 victory there Saturday afternoon down in South Beach. And now the Knicks, for all that they've done here, not only in the regular season, but even in this postseason, disposing the Cavs the way they did. Yes, they lost a tough game one, but in a game two where, let's face it, I'm not going to say the Heat had them on the ropes, but they definitely took a shot to the body where the Heat had a six-point lead with, what, six minutes to go? And granted, that's plenty of time, but they responded and played well. And now you're going to get to see this Knicks team if they're going to be for real or if they're a paper tiger. And this is not to say that the Knicks had any shot of making it to a conference final or an NBA final or anything like that, but for all the promise and for all the hope, And thinking that the Heat, although maybe a little bit more tougher and obviously a little bit more experienced when it comes to this time of year, but we would think that with Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle, R.J. Barrett, a little bit more of a better supporting cast than the Heat, but we all know that Heat culture, the conditioning, just their togetherness, their stick-to-itiveness, yes, they're not the sexiest team on paper when it comes to scoring the basketball, but they play the right way and they play tough and... That's all you ever want from not only just a Eric Spolstra-led team, but just from any team because we all know basketball is made of stars. It's made of big-time scoring. It's made of wing players, dunks, threes, etc. And other than Jimmy Butler, who's not really a three-point shooter, and yes, he can dunk, but one more time, this is not a sexy, flashy offensive team that you're going to think night in, night out. They're going to easily in their sleep score 110, 115, 120 points a game. All you got to do is just look at the scores in this series alone to show that that indicates it. But I think that the Knicks will bounce back tonight. I'm going to lay hope, and I'm not a Knicks fan, everybody knows, but I'm going to put hope in their big guys, Brunson, Randall in particular, and let's see how they respond knowing that they cannot come back to New York down 3-1 because they will have very little to no margin of error to try to get themselves not only a home victory, but then back to Miami, and then, of course, back home for Game 7 in their building, which right now, still very open. If they win tonight, they'll be in good shape, and I expect them to respond, but will I be shocked if the Heat have a similar fate than what we saw there on Saturday? Absolutely not. They're playing well, they're playing crisp. Now, we could see the Heat throw in a clunker from time to time, and maybe tonight is that night, but they have a lot of momentum, Butler, him being back and playing the way he's played, which is going to just spark that team. He is their leader by far. And as well as he goes, and once that engine is revved up, that's how far that Heat team's going to go. So let's see. These games tonight are going to be fascinating, to say the least. And both of these road teams are going to have to win in order to get themselves back in the series and evened out with a best of three lying ahead. Because if they don't, Chances are it's going to be an uphill battle for them to even not only win a game at home, but even try to get that other game on the road, which is going to be hostile. And then a game seven, oof, that is going to be a daunting task for both of those teams if that were to be the case. And that's what we have there in the NBA. So very good second round. You have both series there at 2-2 between Celtic Sixers, Denver Phoenix was what I'm sure they're ecstatic about in the offices down there in Fifth Avenue. And then tonight, I'm sure they have their fingers crossed, hoping that the Warriors will rear their championship head and get their series back even at two. And then, of course, the Knicks. you got to have New York in there. Big market. The Knicks. What more can I say? 
to see if they could get even. And I think the league, if that does happen, it's going to be a very interesting rest of this week to see how it all unfolds. And I'm here for it. And I hope you are too, as we'll reconvene and discuss what will take place between now and early Thursday morning when I'll recap it all at that time. Now, as I turn my attention to the ice and lace up my skates to discuss some Stanley Cup playoff hockey, can anybody stop or slow down the Florida Panthers? Look at the role that they've been on. Down 3-1 to the Bruins, they win those three games as we talked about and knocking off the regular season champs and putting them into the spring and summer vacation, which was a lot earlier than everybody and anybody ever expected. And here they are against the Maple Leaf team that finally got the pianos off their backs when it came to them trying to get past a first-round series in beating the Tampa Bay Lightning. So these games have been close. They've all been one-goal games except for the first one. I know Florida won 4-2. to two. But here are the Panthers, a team that last year was the President's Cup trophy winner for the most points in a regular season, a team that a lot of people thought maybe they could have competed for a cup last year. And as we saw, they got swept in the second round against Tampa. And here they are, just a year removed from that, and now they're just one game away from going to the conference finals after winning in overtime yesterday thanks to Sam Reinhart's heroics. And the Panthers, can anyone, someone, put the fire out on these guys because they are playing as good of hockey as any team in the sport? And we're going to get to Seattle in a second because that's going to be my next segue. But... We've talked about the Panthers going into this playoff, how they have a lot of offense, they have a lot of firepower. Their defense and goaltending, very suspect. And Sergei Bobrovsky, you got to give it up. He's played well here. And we know the Maple Leafs are stacked as well. We know the cast of characters are from the Austin Matthews to the Mitch Marners, Jonathan Tavares, William Nylanders. They're going down the list. So it's not as if they're bereft of goal-scoring threats. And what they've been able to do here is just play very solid defense, the Panthers that is, as well as get those timely goals. And Reinhardt, Johnny on the spot there yesterday in overtime. And now the Leafs are one game away from being ousted out of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And the Panthers one step closer to a conference final. And I'll talk about Florida quick before I get to Toronto. I don't know how this team's going to be slowed down at this point. I get it, they're not blowing people out. I get it that they're just not a juggernaut of a team. But they are super steady and at times spectacular. And here they are. A team that was an eighth seed that made it into the postseason the very last week of the regular season. And get the fire department, get all the cold water you want. I don't even think that's going to cool them off at this point. And you know that they're going to want to close this series out in a sweep. You know that they do not want to get on a flight to go back to Toronto to give them any life in this series. So I would think that if Toronto's going to show some pride, that they would go ahead and at least show up here come tomorrow night. And I think they will, but Florida, they are on fire. And with the way they played, I could just see them coming across with a sweep here and just waiting to see the winner of the Devils and Hurricanes there for the Eastern Conference Final to begin sometime next week. And if you're the Leafs, I talked about this last week after they beat Tampa, you have to wonder whether or not winning that series was their Stanley Cup. We all know that winning one series, and I get it, it took them 19 years, we talked about this ad nauseum, ad infinitum. That even though the pressure was relieved there, but we all know one series a postseason does not make. 
And as they've seen here, and I get it, these games have been nip and tuck, bounce of a puck. We could go through all the scenarios here in these first three games, but they have not been victorious in any one of the three. So now, it's do or die for them. Backs are up against the wall. And I understand if you're trying to break a 56-year hex of not winning a Stanley Cup, the way to do it is to do what they did in the first round, beating Tampa on the road all three times and all in overtime, and then to come back from an 0-3 hole to win the series. But with the way the Panthers are playing, I can't see that happening. So the Leafs, alright, they got their first round series. I don't think they're going to come out of the series alive. Do I expect them to win tomorrow night? No. I really feel that the Panthers will win, but there is something that tells me that maybe Toronto will find a way to win. Now their goaltender, Ilya Samsonov, had to leave with an injury there yesterday. So who knows what his status is going to be for a game number four. You would think that's going to then have the Panther players salivating to know that they could try to tee off on their backup and not have Samson off in net. So that could also be a factor. But right now, the Panthers are just going downhill and without any breaks, and they're just kicking off these teams and these games in their wake, whether it was the last three in the previous series and the first three in this series. This team is not to be denied. And then you have the Seattle Kraken who Dallas won a game two, pretty much in control. They got off to a 3 nothing lead, and they ended up winning 4-2. But then yesterday in the second period, they get not one, not two, not three, not four, but five second period goals en route to a 7-2 victory and a 2-1 series lead there. And it's way too early to even say this, but I'll have a little bit of fun here. Could you imagine the suits, Gary Bettman and company, and you know, they'll put a nice little ribbon and they'll pull the drapes and lift up the window and make sure that the sunshine and the cool spring air will come through the window and paint the rosiest picture of a Seattle Kraken Florida Panthers Stanley Cup final. But please, they'll be lucky to draw flies to watch that on TV. Because Seattle in their second year of existence and no fault of them, and I'm sure that would be an interesting story to have them go to a cup. But then the Panthers, an eight seed, and think about this, the Kraken were a seven seed. So you would have a 7 seed and an 8 seed represent in a Stanley Cup final. Now there's still a lot of hockey to be played. The Panthers are 1 win from a conference final and the Kraken are 2 wins from a conference final. So they still have collectively, if I do the math properly, 11 more wins between the both of them before we can even get to that point. But could you imagine? And this is the beauty of Stanley Cup playoff hockey. Not like the NBA, although we did see the Bucks get ousted in the first round. Very rare you see the 8s beat 1s and 7s beat 2s, etc. But behind the Panthers, the Kraken have played the best hockey. We could talk about the Hurricanes and we'll segue to them that right now. Now the Devils got the Hurricanes right where they want them. Think about this. The Devils lost the first two games against the Rangers in the previous series, 5-1 and 5-1. And then they come to this series after beating the Rangers in 7 Losers, game one, 5-1, and in game two, 6-1. So I thought right then and there, I was like, well, I guess this is how the Devils are going to operate here in this postseason. But what happened in this series, as opposed to the other series, at least they were coming home down 0-2, as opposed to going to the Garden down 0-2. So what did they do yesterday? Huge game where they win 8-4, even had Luke Hughes, the brother of Jack Hughes, get into the lineup, and he made a big contribution there offensively, and the Devils said the hell with it. We're home, we're down 0-2, now we're going to power up and make sure that we're going to get back in the series, and they certainly did so by the tune of eight goals. 
Before you know it, they actually had a 5-1 lead as they got right out of the gate there in the first period and they pretty much held serve throughout. And the Devils, can you think that they could get the equalizer there tomorrow night? I would say yes, only based on these patterns and trends that we've seen so far. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if Carolina ekes out a 3-2 overtime win where they'll go up 3-1 in their series. But when you look at the Devils and what they've been able to respond or how they've been able to respond here, as I talked about, Jack Hughes, of course, being their big guy there, the big gun, who had a goal and a couple of assists there yesterday. I know I talked about Luke Hughes being in the lineup, his brother, who also chipped in. And then for them to get out to that big lead, which I think they needed to, 3 nothing there in the first, and then they got the fourth goal before Carolina was able to score there, just a minute or so after the Devils opened up the scoring in the second period, just 53 seconds in by Nico Heischer. But the Devils... I really feel they're going to tie this series and then from there, it's a crapshoot because Carolina, I know that they can attack with their four lines. They're another team that's very steady, not spectacular. The Devils can be spectacular. I understand the goaltending advantage is more so toward the Hurricanes than it is the Devils, but we've seen this script before with New Jersey and it looks like it may be going that same way here and not to say that they're going to blow them out in the game number four, but I can see this series going back to Carolina tied at two. And at that point, It just remains to be seen on what the next step will be as we'll get to Thursday's podcast. And that game will be tomorrow night. So game five will be Thursday. So you know I'll review and preview that when the time comes. And then you have Edmonton and Vegas where the Oilers were able to equal up the series. And it's weird. All the series that have been played to this point have at least played three games except for Vegas and Edmonton. Which they'll play a game three tonight so it'll all balance out. But for Edmonton to get back on the beam and they meant business there a couple of nights ago where they got five goals right out of the gate. Two by Leon Dreisaitl who has 13 goals in eight games. He's on a torrid streak. And he's a guy that is very underrated. We know him coupled with Connor McDavid who also had two goals himself. We know that they are a lethal tandem. You want to say a latter day Gretzky Curry. Now Curry was a right handed shot where Dreisaitl is a left handed shot. All right, you want to say that? We could just for grins and giggles and for Edmonton Oilers past and the greats that they were and obviously all the cups that they won together. And we know this team has not won a cup yet, but this was a big win for them to get. So now they go back to Edmonton. And if you're the Oilers, we know Vegas has had a big year and I expect them to respond in one of these next two games. But if you're Edmonton, as much as you meant business the other day by getting the series deadlocked at one, now you got to do the same here in games three and four. And if Edmonton is really going to put Vegas in a vice, I would think that they would just not only come out storming, but get these two wins here so they could either close the series out in Vegas or better yet, have a game six in their building to where they could say bye-bye to the Golden Knights and get their slots and get the jackpot to where they could cash in and move back into a conference final setting the way they did last year. And that's how I'm going to look at Edmonton in these next two games. I'm not going to look at them as to say, all right, well, if they get a split, that'd be great. No. You got a big win there on the road. Rocking chair type game. 5-1. Now, let's really blitz Vegas out of the building to where you could win a game three and win a game four and get yourself set up nicely to have one game out of the next three and even better to try to win that fourth game as soon as possible and not later to, dare I say, a game seven where it's even at 3-3 and we all know that it's a coin flip as to who will win that game. So Edmonton, 
right now it's all in front of them. Let's see how they perform here as we get deeper into this week. As the NHL is heating up, I understand that Florida, they're flying high. So that series could be just out the pasture by tomorrow night. Let's see if Dallas will respond after them getting blown out there last night. And then we also have to look at Carolina, New Jersey. I think New Jersey is going to right the ship and get this series even. And if not, I don't think they're going to be done. Even if they go down 3-1, I could see them winning that game to bring it back to Jersey 3-2. And then we'll see what happens there. But the Stanley Cup playoffs, high-flying, entertaining, a lot of overtimes, and you know that I will continue to keep my fingers on the pulse here as we move on with these fall and winter sports getting closer to not only our conference final, but to crown who will be champion when it's all said and done later next month. Now as I lace up my cleats and put on the batting gloves to get in the batter's box for some Major League Baseball, And just to give you a big overview of what's going on, and I'll break down little things here and there, but just some storylines as far as what we've seen here over the past few days. And the things that jump out at me, yes, we can talk about Tampa Bay continuing to win as they did yesterday, and that was a game that they raised. Think about this. They had 32,000 in attendance at the Trop there yesterday to watch that rubber game between the Yankees and Rays. When was the last time that building had 32,000? Not even for a playoff game. Maybe even a World Series game. Now you have to go back to 2008 because remember when they went to the World Series in 2020, that was the whole bubble scenario and they played the World Series in Globe Life Field out in Texas. But for the Rays to have that type of crowd and then to get that type of game to where the Yankees jumped out to a 6-0 lead, Garrett Cole, who has been by far the best pitcher in the American League to this point, I understand some people may say Shane McClanahan of the Rays, but Cole who had an ERA a little bit over one, was 5-0, and and then had a 6-0 lead going into the sixth inning, and then it all fell apart for him as he gave up home run balls, as he started to falter, and then the Rays, who came back to tie the game, and then in the extras, you had that crazy play there with Aaron Hicks, and I know the Yankee fan is sick of seeing Aaron Hicks as he was in that rundown, and even with that rundown, he should have been a little bit more of a heads up. Now, maybe he capitulated only because he felt like he got tagged. But when you look at that rundown, I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere, to where he got caught there between third and home. It was in the 10th inning. And as it looked like he got tagged and Hicks went to the ground, Hicks just stood there and the umpires made no call. So could you imagine if Hicks had a heads-up mentality to, let's say, not take for granted that he was tagged out, or maybe if he was tagged out, and I didn't see the replay, but then for him to at least make a charge back to home plate to see if they could steal that run, and as it was, he took a couple of seconds before getting up, realizing that the umpires made no call, and then he started to dart toward home plate, and then the throw was made, tagged out, and that was it, until the Rays were able to win in the bottom of the 10th, 8-7, just a tough loss for the Yanks, You know that whenever Garrett Cole starts, you want to get those games considering the way their pitching staff has been just on the IL and have been a mass unit as I talked about last week. And instead of getting a series win, which would have been great for the Yankees in Tampa, but the Rays continue their winning ways 28-7. and And think about this, and I talked about this on Thursday with this series. By them taking two out of three, they have a 10-game lead on the Yankees. 10 Now, I understand it's only May the 8th. We saw the Mets have a 10-game lead on May 31st last year. I think it was 10.5 against Atlanta, and how did that turn out? So we know baseball is a marathon. It's a long season. 
but the Yankees with all their injuries and just them starting off sluggish and not getting on track even though they won a bunch of series to start off the year but the last two to three weeks have not been favorable to them but the Rays continue their winning ways like I mentioned 28 and 7 best record in the sport and they have a five and a half game lead over the Baltimore Orioles as of right this moment who played the Atlanta Braves over the weekend and I'll segue to Atlanta they won the back two of those games the Braves are now 24 and 11 and don't look now Met fans NL East and maybe even the rest of the National League They currently have the best record in the National League. And on top of that, have the biggest division lead over any team. That's right, even including the Rays. Seven-game lead over the Mets, who are a game under 500. And you know I'm going to get to them in a second. So the Braves, who have been clicking on all cylinders, they've played very well here to start off their year. If you recall last year, they got up to a very slow start. Maybe you could attribute it to the World Series hangover from the year before. But I believe as you got closer to Memorial Day in that 10 and a half game lead that I talked about just a minute or two ago, how they were under 500 and I believe their record was maybe 24 and 25 or somewhere around there. They were a game under 500 late into May. And as it is, they already matched their win total of late May last year to where we are right now. And the Braves, we know their team is going to be here for the long haul. They signed all their key players, the run of the Cunhas of the world, Austin Riley's, the Michael Harris twos, Ozzy Albies, going down the list, Matt Olson, Sean Murphy in a trade, they gave him a big contract, Spencer Strider got the big money, Max Fried is the next guy and you know they're going to pay him. This team is going nowhere. And I talked about this last year with this Met team in comparison to the Braves, they could bring in all the mercenaries they want. They could bring in all the high-priced players. They could bring in Otani if they want. They could trade for this guy, that guy. It doesn't matter. You have to do it the right way, and the Braves have done just that. And it shows in their 24-11 and 11 record, flying high, and it looks like they are going to be running away with this division, even as early as now. And I get it. Look at the Yankees with the way they performed, 10 games behind the Rays. There's still plenty of time left. And we all know that things could happen, injuries, long losing streaks, etc. But the Braves, like I said, they're going to be in this for the long haul. And right now, they look like, by far, they're going to be the best team in the National League. And then you have the Pirates, who I have to bring up here, because a couple of weeks ago, we were singing their praises, how they got off to that 20-8 and start. And since then, they have not been good. They've actually lost seven in a row to the point where they're actually still in first place. But they're in first place by the slimmest of margins, just a half game ahead of the Milwaukee Brewers and tied in the loss at 15. But this is what happens when you go to the deep end of the pool. So they had the raise where they went to visit last week and then they got swept down in Tampa. And then they go home to Toronto and we know Toronto is a very formidable opponent. A lot of people think that they're going to go to a World Series this year. And for the Pirates in their building to get swept by the Blue Jays is maybe not ominous, but now could be the beginning of the end as the Pirates are now slowly but surely coming back down to earth. And do we think this was going to be sustainable? Absolutely not. And they were beating up bad teams when they had those winning streaks. As a matter of fact, they had that seven-game winning streak when they beat both the Reds and the Rockies back-to-back. And now, speaking of which, they have the Rockies coming into their building, so maybe that'll be the panacea to get themselves back in the win column. But for the Pirates, we were hoping that maybe they could get to Memorial Day with a little bit of juice, and Memorial Day is now three weeks from today, 
And the Central is not a big-time division, although you think the Brewers are going to surpass them and maybe get themselves in a spot where they could be in that lofty perch. It may not be too lofty considering the division, but you get my drift. And the Pirates, let's see if they're going to tread water here where they have the Rockies coming in and maybe they can win a series there and get themselves back on track and still be, I'm not going to say a threat, but still be at least in the conversation as we get closer to the end of the month and the first major holiday to kick us off here for the summer of 2023. I'll spend a couple of minutes here on my downtrodden Mets who have just been in a tailspin here and inexcusable to say the least. I get it, your pitching is out of whack here where David Peterson gets sent down and now Justin Verlander is back and even though he gave up two solo home runs in his return to Detroit, and I understand he's already returned to Detroit when he was a member of the Astros, but in a Met uniform where he gave up the two home runs in the first inning and then pitched five innings, 78 pitches, what you'd expect from Verlander, five strikeouts, he did walk a batter, but the Mets were unable to score a run in Detroit as they got swept by the Tigers. And then winning a 1-0 game on Friday night, the Mets couldn't get another victory, let alone just another opportunity as they lose 5-2 on Saturday. They get blown out of City Field there 13-6 yesterday. And when you look at the stretch to where they lose 2-3 out of three at home to Colorado, swept by the Tigers in Detroit, prior to that, you lose 2-3 out of three to the division rival Braves. You also lose 2-3 out of three to the Washington Nationals of all teams. And then you lose the back end of a four-game series to San Francisco where they had a great trip up until that point they were 7-1 and one, and alright you come home 7-3 and three, you'll live with that but since then they haven't been able to get out of their own way as they've just been in a free fall since that series in San Francisco to where they've lost what? 11-14? As I do the math here 4, 1-4, 1-6, 2-6, 2-9, 3-9 yes 11-14 And that is just a disgrace. And I don't care if you have me pitching. They have not been good offensively. Yes, when they score runs, that's where the pitching goes awry. And when they pitch, they don't hit. It's just been a mess there for the Mets here over the last two and a half weeks to where you have to just wonder a little bit. Is the message by Buck Showalter starting to wear on this team? I'm not saying that's the case. I don't have any inside information if that is to be true. But... The Yankees, with all their injuries, and they have better talent than the Mets, I will say that. But even with their starting rotation and Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, those guys out of the lineup, they're a game over 500. And the Mets, who have had the dregs, and as much as we could talk about Tampa, we could say that with their 28-7 start and they've beaten the Tigers, actually swept the Tigers. (laughs) So that's all you need to know, and they beat the... Nationals and the A's and yes the Mets beat the A's two out of three or as a matter of fact they swept them that was part of the West Coast trip alright so they did good there but they're playing these same teams and they can't beat them so there is absolutely no excuse I'm not trying to say you gotta run through these teams I'm not trying to say that you gotta win these series at a clip but for Colorado to come into your building after losing in Detroit for three straight and then this happens something must be going on in that locker room at least I would think for this team to not perform the way they should be performing thinking that they have aspirations of going to and winning a World Series. And right now, they're not even a playoff team, let alone a 500 team, as they're a game under 500. And as I said on Thursday, Max Scherzer is just the beginning of the end of his dominant self because what we've seen so far in his starts have been putrid. And he'll pitch in Cincinnati this week as he tries to regain some of that form against a lowly red team. But hey, 
Mets can't beat the Tigers. Mets can't beat the Rockies. Do I expect them to do the same against the Reds? And they go to Washington this weekend. So you could throw out what happened there over the last two weeks. It's all ahead of them against the Reds, Nationals. Can you win five out of six? Or can we even start four out of six? Can we at least do that? And then some sad news in the world of baseball as Vita Blue, who was a left-hander who pitched for the Oakland A's, actually was an MVP in 1971 who was a Cy Young Award winner that year, had a huge year, 24-8, and 1-8-2 ERA, 301 strikeouts, 24 complete games. Huh, 24 complete games? Think about that. Now, that was 52 years ago, so you know the game and the sport was a hell of a lot different then than it is now, but died at the age of 73 on Saturday due to complications stemming from cancer. And he was a character, a guy that was a big-time pitcher, had his run-ins with the... Finley's, the owners of the A's during that time when they won the three straight, 72, 73, 74. Also played for the Giants later on in his career and had a very good career for a one Vita Blue. Won over 200 games throughout, had over 2,000 strikeouts. Was also a member of the Kansas City Royals there later on after his days with the Giants. And just an icon in the Bay Area, as we know, considering he played for both franchises. But Vita Blue, thoughts, Prayers, condolences go out to his family, the MLB community, etc. for his passing, sadly, at the age of 73. Alright, and then to wrap up, I'm going to go rapid fire with three quickies here. I'm going to start with the NFL. Not that there's anything noteworthy to discuss as far as player movement or things of that nature, but the schedule will be released on Thursday and we'll get into that a little bit more then. But I want to preface it by saying that the opening game We'll be in Kansas City, as we know. Usually goes to the Super Bowl winner that first Thursday night. And you have a lot of interesting teams that could be in that marquee opening night matchup where you could have the Cincinnati Bengals. You could also have the Buffalo Bills. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a little prediction here. Because of the unbalanced schedule where you have the 17 games, so this is the year where the AFC has the extra home game. So they'll have nine throughout the course of the season. And they'll have to play another NFC team to boot. That NFC team is a team in the NFC East. And it just so happens that that NFC team is the Philadelphia Eagles. And if you recall, the year after Denver won Super Bowl 50, it just so happened by the football gods and the scheduling gods that the Carolina Panthers, whom they played in the Super Bowl, that was your week one matchup in the Mile High City. So I would not be surprised if you see come maybe tomorrow or even Wednesday, they're going to leak out the schedule here and there. But your opening night matchup, maybe in all likelihood will be against one of the AFC behemoths, again, the Bengals or the Bills. But I'm going to predict it's going to be Philadelphia because it's very rare you get a Super Bowl matchup the following year. And we've seen matchups where you have the NFC against the AFC. We saw that last year when the Bills had to go to the Rams to play the season opener there after the Rams won their Super Bowl. So I wouldn't be surprised if you get another NFC-AFC, and why not have a rematch of the Super Bowl, Jalen Hurts, Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City as they raise the banner for not only the season, but another Super Bowl for the mantle for the Chiefs, the third one in their franchise's history. So I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that your opening night for the NFL 2023 season is going to be Eagles at Chiefs. And whatever is going to get leaked out between now and then, we'll discuss on Thursday and, of course, rehash it all 
on next Monday's podcast as to the schedule, whether the Thanksgiving Day games, the Saturday games, a lot of the key matchups, so you know we'll uncover that at that time. The Kentucky Derby was Saturday, the 149th running of the Derby, and you had Mage at 15-1 to win the Derby as he came up the track there and was nose-to-nose. I couldn't even tell you who was second. And I'm down on horse racing, and I have been down on horse racing for quite some time. Not that I'm an aficionado, to say the least. But knowing that you had all these horses perish there at Churchill Downs, and you had two more horses died in preliminary races on the undercard throughout the course of Friday into the Saturday races, and of course the crown jewel being the Kentucky Derby. But you had that. You also had Forte having the back out of the Kentucky Derby, who was a 3-1 to favorite. And who knows, I believe he had a leg injury, but this is what's happened here, not only at Churchill Downs, but at other tracks and other facilities throughout the country, to where these horses, and the two in this particular case, were Chloe's Dream and Freezing Point. They were both injured during their races, and I believe because of their legs or because of their joints that they were unable to finish the race, that, sad to say... And I know I use this term from time to time, and it's proverbial. But in this case, they get put out the pasture. And as I said there on Thursday, horse racing has become archaic. It's a sport that really should start to wean out here. And it won't because of the gambling aspect. And we could talk about history all we want, and so on and so forth, and secretariat. I get it, but it is time. You don't see any dog racing or rabbit racing. You know, We know that it's out there. More so the dog racing than the rabbit. I'm just being facetious here. and Maybe I shouldn't be facetious. But the point of the matter is, is that although it is tradition and history and a triple crown, etc. But just knowing that these horses, they seem like they've been dropping like flies here over the course of not just this past week, but years. Go back to Santa Ana in California and what we've heard that about that over the years. And that's also been real sports topics there on HBO with Brian Gumbel where they've had to really investigate about what's really going on with these horses in these tracks, in these facilities, stables, etc. And it's just deplorable. And even though you got two more races, the Preakness a week from this coming Saturday, and then you have the Belmont three weeks after that, and I'm only bringing it up, let's see if Mage is going to have any legs, I hate to use that term, to run in the Preakness with a 15-1 to odds that he was here in the Kentucky Derby. Is it going to be another rich strike? Scenario, as we talked about on Thursday last year, where he was 30-1 to and won the Derby, and then skipped the Preakness altogether, only to show up at the Belmont and end up being 6th. Is that going to happen here with Mage? Is there going to be any juice for the Preakness if he's going to run? Or they may feel that they're going to have to withdraw from the race because they don't want to embarrass him, because he may be up the track when it's all said and done? I don't know, but you know I'm going to talk about it, but it's going to be very brief, just like I have here, but more so what's happening off the track than what's happening on. And then lastly... Canelo Alvarez fought the other night, and he went back to his homeland of Mexico, which was a big story. It was an historic moment for the legendary boxer from Mexico, and he retained his super middleweight champion belt with a unanimous decision over John Ryder. John Ryder? Who's John Ryder? I don't even know who the guy is. If he fell on me, he bloodied him and broke his nose there, I believe, in the early part of the fight, knocked him down in the fifth round. In fact, Ryder, I believe in the post-match, said that he had his nose broken in the second round. But Canelo, who continues to fight, and I understand he's trying to see if he could get to fight a couple other guys that are maybe more so in his, not necessarily weight class, but maybe closer to his ilk. But this is why boxing, to me, 
is on life support and just borderline dead. I know a couple of weeks ago, I got into that Gervonta Davis-Ryan Garcia fight, which wasn't really, eh, nothing to write home about. But for Alvarez, congratulations to him as he contains, or as you say, he retains his belt. But boxing is a far cry from what it once was. And I'll just put this baby to bed by saying this. Usually that first Saturday in May, just like the first or second Saturday in November, was always a huge fight night. That was always a night where you could rally the troops, get everybody over for the pay-per-view, order pizza, beer, etc. So you could watch whether it's a heavyweight bout, middleweight, didn't matter. Welterweight, you watched it no matter what. And now, you could have Canelo fighting whomever it is. And John Ryder, I'm sorry my guy, I don't know who you are, but it is just a, forget about a far cry. It is nowhere near what it once was back in the day when we look forward to those Saturday night fights and have the people over, and it was an event. Now, it is barely that, and then some. So I just wanted to throw that in there, just from a boxing scenario, as John Ryder, and he's gotten some pub here, as far as beating a couple of guys over the last year, where he moved up the ranks, but obviously not enough to come close to -to toe-to-toe, or hanging in the ring there with a one Canelo Alvarez. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about in the books. One more time... Another podcast, which has been released, Action Network's Maria Marino. Definitely peep that. It's also on YouTube. Check it on my YouTube channel as you'll see it there, live and in living color. My first interview that I'm posting there on the platform where I'm looking to expand. So if you haven't subscribed, please do so. Go to YouTube. Tell all your friends, family, etc. But of course, you can also get it here on wherever you get your podcast, jreels.com, the website too. And thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for being a participant, listening to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review, of course, on wherever you get your podcasts. Throw me a few stars, write a review just so we can increase the visibility so I can get more guests to come on so they know who Jay Reels is, they know who the podcast and what it's all about. So please, if you could do so, I would greatly appreciate it. On my socials, hit me up, people. On YouTube, at Jay Reels, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels One, just a number. And then, of course, the old fashioned way, if you want to hit me up with a question, comment, or suggestion, you can go to the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. And then, lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy.com, slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth will go 100% to the production, the upkeep of the website, equipment, etc. As I continue to elevate and make sure that this podcast is firing on all cylinders. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about people. If you can't hear or feel the passion in my voice coming into this microphone through your earbuds, headphones or speakers, then I don't know what. I may have to even speak louder, ratchet up the intensity, who knows, but I am not going anywhere It's in the blood, it's in the DNA, as I like to say, because one more time, that passion, that fire, that fury, that energy that goes right through this microphone is evident, and when I share my thoughts, feelings, analysis, opinions, critiques, praise on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it, from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, The J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Center to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.